let's just jump right into the message. Last week, I shared a message with you, and I began the message by asking this question, are you a disciple? If you look up the word disciple in the dictionary, it just simply means a follower or a student. A disciple is a follower or a student. You know, Jesus was a teacher. You know, they called him rabbi, which meant teacher. And the disciples were learning how to follow in the steps of the Messiah. And, and most of us don't refer to ourselves as disciples, but that's exactly who we ought to be. We're disciples. We're learners and followers of Jesus. While most of us don't refer to ourselves as disciples, we call ourselves Christians, and there's nothing wrong with calling yourself a Christian. This isn't like some camp campaign against calling ourselves a Christian. The word Christian or the title Christian wasn't something that the church adopted itself. It wasn't something that was self-imposed. It's not like one day the church woke up and said, we're going to call ourselves Christians. But the word Christian really came from the world, and it was meant to be a derogatory statement. Uh, how to identify the followers of Jesus. Remember, in those days, there were plenty of rabbis, plenty of teachers, and there are many disciples who followed these rabbis. And the term Christian was really used to distinguish this group of people who followed Jesus. And again, it was not meant to be a compliment. It was really a derogatory statement. Today, we wear that, that word with some pride, and we should. But when you look at the word Christian and people who identify as Christian, it's really troubling because in essence, a Christian is someone who follows Jesus. But yet we have a majority of the people in our nation that say they follow Jesus, but they don't follow Jesus. It's just simply a, a matter of identity. I'm a Christian, but they don't follow Jesus. And there, there can't be that discrepancy. So here this morning, I'm just going to ask you this question. Are you following Jesus? And it doesn't matter if you call yourself a Christian. That doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't matter if you've You've called Jesus your Savior. That doesn't mean he's your Savior. It doesn't matter if you've repeated the sinner's prayer a hundred times. If you aren't born again, and if you aren't following Jesus, you aren't following Jesus. John 3, 16, one of the verses that we, we probably cherish the most in Christianity, probably the most recognized verse in the Bible worldwide. While it's the most recognized verse in the Bible, it's also the most misunderstood verse in the Bible. And here's what I mean. There's nothing wrong with a verse, by the way. It all has to do with how we process this verse or how we understand this verse. So let's say this, John 3, 16, a salvation scripture, 100%. If you're looking at any type of uh, uh, Bible verses and you're going to establish doctrine, you would obviously choose John 3, 16 as one of those verses. But here's what people do. People sometimes treat John 3.16 like it is the verse. It's the only verse, or it's the, it's the verse that goes on top of the pyramid, and it's not. So we handle it kind of like a puzzle. I don't know about you, I, I, there was a day where I, I still like to enjoy to do puzzles, I just don't do them, but I like those thousand-piece puzzles, something with a challenge, right? But here's the deal with a puzzle. Each piece is vitally important for that picture. If you don't put in every piece of that puzzle, the picture is incomplete. I don't care if it's corner with some grass or a sky or whatever, the picture is still incomplete. You have to have all 1,000 pieces in the puzzle to complete the picture. And sometimes what people do this is they take John 3:16 and they use it like a puzzle piece. Now there are other pieces in the puzzle, but they treat that puzzle piece like it's the only puzzle. It's the picture itself. And that's where the confusion is. And that's where a lot of people look at John 3, 16, and they say, all I have to do to be saved is believe. 
But what do you do with all the other verses that create the entire picture? In fact, if you'll do this, just in John 3, 16, we read it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, if you read that verse and that's all you read and that's all you understand regarding salvation, you will come to this conclusion. All I have to do to be saved is to believe. That's all I got to do is, is to believe and I'll be saved. That is where the fault comes in. You can't just read one verse of the Bible. By the way, if you ever have a discussion with people about the Bible, don't ever use Scripture against Scripture. God, God is not against himself. The Holy Spirit inspired all the writers of Scripture. There's no conflict in Scripture. The only conflict that is there is between us, believers. The Scriptures are in unity, so the idea is this, let's come into the totality of Scripture. What does the Bible say? Not just in this one verse, but what is it saying in regards to salvation? And if we do this, if we take John 3, 16, and we kind of just zoom out from it, and we look at the entire conversation, it's really interesting what people ignore in that context, because John 3, 16 is a verse that is a sentence. It's just a sentence in a conversation that Jesus is having with a person named Nicodemus. And if we'll zoom out, we'll start from the very beginning, you'll see the, the entirety of this conversation. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. This, this man, again, is a Pharisee, he's part of the Sanhedrin, and he comes to Jesus, calls him Rabbi. He's acknowledging he's a teacher. And he says that you are a teacher that has come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Now, Dick Nicodemus did this. He believed in Jesus. When he comes to Jesus, he acknowledges, you are a teacher, and you are a teacher from God. And the reason I, I know you're a teacher from God is because of the things you're doing. The things that you're doing testifies that God is with you. So I don't know what you would call Nicodemus, but I would call him a believer. He believes. And you know what? There are a lot of people in our community that believes in Jesus just like Nicodemus. Now, here's the point. If we take John 3, 16, we isolate it, and we say that is all it needs, that's all that needs to be done to be saved is just believe, then everything Jesus says to Nicodemus, once he says, I believe you are a teacher, you're from God, God is with you, then we have to skip all the way down to John 3, 16, because everything Jesus says between that is irrelevant, if that's the case. Now, don't you find it ironic that Jesus recognizes this man, comes to him, and, and acknowledges you are a teacher from God? And he doesn't say, well said, Nicodemus, good job, you're a believer. No, what does he say? You must be born again. Now, if believing was it, if that was all it would take, why would Jesus go a step further and say, 
I'm glad you believe, but you must be born again. Church, nothing has changed. If we believe in Jesus, we must be born again. There is no option. We, we can't take those words out of the Bible. We can't take that conversation out of context even. The whole context is salvation. John 3, 16, that's the first of the conversation. Why would we eliminate that first, that part of the, of the conversation, just say, well, this is all that matters? Nothing has changed. We must be born again. On the night of the resurrection, Jesus appears to the disciples, and he says this, because remember, at this time, when Jesus has this conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, no one is born again. No one has experienced new birth. And here's why, because the Holy Spirit has not come. He had not yet been given. But this is when it takes place for the disciples, John chapter 20, verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled, for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. On the evening of the resurrection, and he had said this, he showed them his hands inside. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. They are born again because they receive the Holy Spirit. Now, after the disciples received the Holy Spirit, were born again, there was a world of difference in their lives. I want you to think about the lives of the disciples before, while they were following Jesus, they believed in Jesus, but they had not yet been born again. I mean, how many times did the disciples hear the teachings of Jesus and didn't get it? Many times. They just didn't get it. How about this? On the evening of the uh, of arrest of Jesus, all the disciples betray him. Judas betrays Jesus, commits suicide. Peter denies Jesus three times. Remember, there was one time in the ministry that James and John wanted to call down fire from heaven on some unbelieving Samaritans. Now, that's a lot of grace and mercy. These guys don't have a good track record. Here's why. Here's the difference. Because they're not born again until they receive the Holy Spirit. They can't be born again because the Holy Spirit couldn't be given until Jesus had died, was resurrected, then the Holy Spirit could be given. They can't be born again until that takes place. All that changes for the disciples, all those mistakes. I'm not saying they're perfect because they're not, but you know, none of those men fall away from Jesus ever again. In fact, all of them are martyred for their faith with exception of John. A thousand piece puzzle completes a picture. If it's a thousand pieces, all 1,000 pieces have to be put together in order to create that picture. You can't just take one piece of the puzzle and say, there it is. This is the entire picture. But yet this is exactly what people do. They take this one scripture out of context and they say, all I have to do to be saved is to believe. And this is why so many people call themselves Christians, but they don't follow Jesus. Believers who aren't born again won't follow Jesus. And here's why they won't follow Jesus, because they can't follow Jesus. You can't follow Jesus without the Holy Spirit. I'm going to say that again. You can't follow Jesus without the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not talking about baptism the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues. I'm talking about being born again. You cannot follow Jesus without the Holy Spirit. If, that was, if that's not true, then you would need to receive the Holy Spirit. But Jesus made sure on the night of the resurrection, the first chance that he has, my disciples need to receive the Holy Spirit. These are the guys I've invested into, poured into, 
and they have to make disciples themselves. They must be born again. In fact, if you just look at the word, Romans 8, 9, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, there's not different spirits. The spirit of Christ is the Holy Spirit. He is not his. You don't belong to Jesus unless you have the Holy Spirit. We call ourselves Christians all day long. We can do that and that's fine. But if we aren't born again and the Holy Spirit doesn't abide in us, we aren't Christians following Jesus. Now, we may have religion, but it, we aren't following Jesus. If you aren't born again, born of the Spirit, just try to follow Jesus. I, I just double dog dare you. Here's what happens when you do that. When you try to follow Jesus without the Holy Spirit in you, who's transformed your life, whole, the, Christianity becomes very dull. It becomes frustrating, it becomes empty, it just becomes religious, and it's very lifeless, and you're like, why should I live like this? this? This is useless, why do I waste my time with this? And it's because of this. You've not had a life-changing experience, a life-changing encounter with the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in the Great Commission, go and make disciples. He didn't say, go and make believers. He said, go and make disciples. And then baptize them. Now, it's funny because when you look at water baptism, water baptism is, is something that belongs to people who are born again. We don't baptize people to get saved. We baptize people because they are saved, because they are born again. Now, if you put someone in the water who isn't saved and you tell them this is going to save them, you are going to mess them up because that's not what the Bible says. We baptize people who are born again. And unfortunately, that's who what we're supposed to do, but that's not what we do. So then you have people who, they believe they are saved because they believe. And then we baptize them and tell them, after you're baptized, you are saved, signed, sealed, delivered. Boy, we, did we create a lot of problems just by miscommunicating the word of God. Water baptism is something that symbolizes the new birth experience. Water baptism is simply an exterior ceremony that testifies that what's already taken place in that person's life who is born again. Water baptism uh, symbolizes that a believer has died with Christ, has been buried with him, and has been raised to life with him, and can walk then in newness of life. Why can you walk in newness of life? Because you are born again. You can't do that without the Holy Spirit. We should never baptize people who think they are going to come out of that water and be changed and saved. We should never do that. The person should have gone down at that water already walking in newness of life. This ceremony we do testifies what's already taking place. That person has given their life to Jesus. They've had a life-changing encounter with him. He has saved them. He has transformed them. And now they are testifying to everyone that they are a Christian. They are following Jesus. Water baptism should testify to the newness of life experienced through new birth. Look at Romans 6, 4. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God, even so, we should also walk in newness of life. The same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in those who are born again. The same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead transforms us into a new creation. The same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus to everlasting life empowers us to live in newness of life. Please hear those words. The same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus to everlasting life is the same Holy Spirit who will change our lives, gives us new power to live in newness of life. The Holy Spirit won't force us to follow Jesus, even if you are genuinely born again. 
I don't want to communicate this in a way that you think, well, I'm born again. I received the Holy Spirit. I should never have any problem with sin. No, friend, the fight is on then at that point. And here's why. Think back to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve knew no sin, lived in a sinless environment. God told them not to eat from the forbidden tree. Don't eat the fruit from the forbidden tree. God permitted Adam and Eve to eat from every other tree in the garden, just not the tree from the forbidden, or the forbidden fruit. Likewise, God, but God didn't prevent them from eating from that tree. You know, God didn't build a fence around it, a, a guard around it, a building around it, didn't place angels around it. He just said, that's the tree, that's the fruit, don't eat it. It's the same way with you and I. Even after we've experienced new birth, God doesn't prevent you from sinning. Now, don't you wish that was the case? But that's not how it works because you have a free will. He doesn't prevent you from sinning. So there are sometimes people are like, they look at new birth, they think, well, that's the answer. I'm never going to sin again. You're, you're always going to, until as long as you are in this body, you are going to have a war against the flesh and a war against sin. We may feel conviction. The Holy Spirit may be urging you to avoid sin, but he will not make you abstain from sin. He will not force you to do so. Adam and Eve were in a sinless environment without sin, and yet they chose to disobey. I mean, they met with God. In the cool of the day, they would meet with God. How can you go from that place of knowing God so intimately in a sinless environment, not knowing sin yourself, to disobeying God? So I don't want you ever to think that when I'm born again, that's somehow just going to shift away from all that. I'm never going to have any problems, and that's not the truth. The sin nature was then passed on from Adam and Eve to all human beings, and we're all born slaves to sin. Jesus came to, to give his life as a ransom for our sins so that we don't have to be held captive to those sins as slaves. Now, once we're born again, we're no longer slaves under the dominion of sin. And if you ever really want to dive into this deeper, Romans chapter 6 is a chapter in the Bible that should be, every Christian should study Romans chapter 6. But let's go down to verse 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God bethink that though you were slaves to sin, past tense, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Now, if you are genuinely born again, you have been delivered from the bondage of sin. Prior to new birth, you were under the dominion of sin. You were held captive. You were a slave to sin. Now, I've heard people speak of generational curses before, and you can do so under those conditions. Those conditions of a person who is not regenerated, who is not born again. Otherwise, you create a huge problem in Scripture. If you're genuinely born again, Christ became a curse for you. His blood is sufficient. He redeemed you. He bought you back. He delivered you from the dominion of sin. If you're born again, you are no longer enslaved to sin, past, present, or future. If that wasn't the case, then we would remain captive over, under the dominion of sin, and the salvation that Jesus provides is insufficient. We all know that isn't true. We know the blood of Jesus is sufficient. Now, if you're still under the dominion of sin, if you're born again, you're held captive by sin, there are two reasons. Really simple, you're not born again, number one. You're just not born again. Or number two, you are born again, but you have remained in a prison cell that has been unlocked and open, but you stay captive in it. 
See, Jesus redeemed you. He bought you. He purchased you. He delivered you. But if you remain in that cell, then you're going to stay in the confines of that cell. And you're not going to enjoy the freedom that Christ has for you. Those are the only two reasons why a Christian is under the dominion power of sin. You either aren't born again or you just remain in that sin. Many of you struggle with sin. Maybe try to make excuses. Well, my granddaddy was an alcoholic. My daddy was an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. Maybe so if you're not born again. But if you're born again, that curse has been broken. Maybe if you're genuinely born again and if those sins had dominion over you, those sins have dominion over you because you haven't been discipled properly. I mean, that's one of the biggest things. You just haven't been discipled properly. You know, someone tells you the door is open, but you just don't know how to walk out of it. Now, I know that that sounds so simple, but yet this happens every day in the body of Christ. You have been set free. The blood of Jesus is sufficient. But you just don't know how to walk out of that cell because, let's face it, that cell can be very comfortable. It can be a place where we've retreated to many times. But you got to come out of that cell. And sometimes it's just a matter of discipleship. You need to be discipled how to walk out of that cell and how to follow Jesus. You're born again, remain under the dominion of sin. It's because you choose to place yourself under that dominion. See, being a disciple of Jesus is all about freedom. Now, I want to say this. Um, we have some really sick teachings in Christianity today. That the idea of freedom is this. It is such, such a, a, a misconception of grace. That grace is there, available for you just to live like hell and, and do what you want. And as long as you believe, you're going to go to heaven. It's a ter- that's how grace is for. Grace is for you to walk out of that cell, not to stay in that cell and sin and be held captive and go to heaven. That's not what grace is for. Grace is for you to get out of that cell and follow Jesus, to walk with him. Paul goes on to say this in Romans chapter 6, verse 18. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you were presented your members as slaves of uncleanliness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Church, if you're born again, you can follow Jesus. And if you aren't born again, following Jesus is not difficult, impossible. Jesus said these words in John 14, 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. Now, that's true. We believe that verse, do greater things. And, we're, and I think we only think of just miracles, but just the way of living, living our lives the way Jesus lived. All that is, is the, the entire picture. And if we go down just a couple of verses in the same conversation, look what he says in verse 15. If you love me, speaking to his disciples, keep my commandments. But you're not going to keep those commandments without the Holy Spirit. And he makes that abundantly clear. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. And the reason why, when you look at that verse, helper, in your translation of the Bible, most of you should have it capitalized. It should be capitalized because the helper is the Holy Spirit, that he may abide with you forever. Verse 17, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot see, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be within you. So we cannot do greater things without the Holy Spirit. The helper is the Holy Spirit. He helps us 
those who are born again to do greater things. Think back to your own life. Before you experienced Jesus, before you experienced new birth, think about how hard it was to live for God without the Holy Spirit. Now, this is what often happens. Before you are born again, and you know when it takes place. No preacher, no one can tell you this. You know when it happens. So this is what takes place. You're, you're going through this journey often, and you're, especially for those of you who are like me that got saved later. So you try to do the right thing, and you take a couple steps forward, and all of a sudden you got this, this bungee cord that is just strapped to your back, and it only lets you get so far. And what does it do? It snaps you right back into sin, right back into the things you're trying to flee from because the flesh is powerless to do this. This, you can only find this freedom in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit giving you that freedom, giving you that power. And so you would walk out of that sin and you would just be snapped right back. See, some of you aren't born again. That's why you seem to take a couple steps forward and you just get snapped right back. Only with the transforming power and help of the Holy Spirit can a person keep the commandments of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17. If I can work this into every message, I will. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Church, answer this for yourself. When did that occur in your life? Because it, it must occur. You must be born again. You must be a new creation. And that only takes place by the hand of the, in the power of the Holy Spirit. When did you become a new creation? When did you begin to walk in newness of life without being snapped back into sin? If you haven't become a new creation, that's why living in newness of life is frustrating and seems impossible because it is. Because if that's the case, if, if, it's not, if we don't need the Holy Spirit to do this, then we can earn our salvation. We can earn our way to heaven. But we know that is futile and impossible. And that's why we need the help and the power of the Holy Spirit. Please hear me. Even if you're born again, that doesn't mean you'll automatically keep the commandments of Jesus. Remember, daily we crucify the flesh. We choose to live according to the Spirit. And thanks be to God when you're born again, you have that choice. But before you are born again, you don't have a choice. You are a slave to sin, but the prison door is open. It's difficult to walk because we live in a fallen world. Fallen people all around us. Temptation all around us. But you can follow Jesus and walk in newness of life. The new you has been set free, and sin doesn't have dominion over you. But again, this is where discipleship is so important. Because let's just face it, it just doesn't happen automatically. You have to learn how to follow Jesus. Look at your own life and ask you this. Just examine your own fruit. Ask this question of yourself and answer it for yourself. Am I following Jesus? Are you following Jesus right up here? How you think, how you feel, how you react. Are you following Jesus in your attitude? Are you following Jesus in your marriage? Are you following Jesus in how you treat people? See, the goal of Christianity isn't believing. Satan does that. The goal of Christianity is living, following Jesus, living his example. Remember, the Great Commission is to make disciples, not believers. And when you can live the Christian life and you can be the Christian and not just pretend to be one or be called one, it is a testimony. It is appealing. Religion has no appeal to anyone. But when you see someone whose life has been transformed by the power of God, something is compelling about that. And everyone's going to hit this place in their lives where like, this is not working for me. 
But that, it worked for that person. What did they do? What did they experience? There are so many people in our community that believe in Jesus, but they aren't following him. And here's the reason for that discrepancy. I think we can find it in comparing two groups of people. Here's the first one, Matthew 4, 18. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They didn't contemplate it. They didn't think about it. Give me a couple days. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Now, when Jesus called these disciples, he didn't convince them, I need you to believe in me. I just need you to believe in me. It's not what he did. He just said, hey, follow me. Now, when you, re- when you, when you think about that, you think, well, what happened there? What, what would cause these men who were fishing that's not what happened to the disciples. When Jesus said, hey, follow me, it was like, Whoop, we must follow Jesus. It wasn't like some divine robotic reaction. This is what, this is what we miss, because we don't understand the terminology. A rabbi, Jesus is a rabbi. He is a teacher. And so an invitation to follow a teacher was a high honor in Jewish culture. When a teacher would come to you and say, follow me, it was a formal invitation to follow him, to be one of his students, to be one of his disciples. Now we look at it and say, this dude was long hair and beard, was just walking by and said, follow me. What are these people thinking? It has a little bit more depth than that. But again, it's one of those cultural things we don't quite understand. But if you see that and you understand, they recognize he's a rabbi, he's a teacher, and he's inviting them to follow him, which was again, a great honor. So they left everything because of that. Look, in Luke chapter five, again, just, just down after the same experience, and this is in the book of Luke, after these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, which is Matthew, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he, being Matthew or Levi, left all, rose up, and followed him. Now, I believe this is where the wheels fall off of the proverbial cart in today's Christianity. People believe in Jesus. They want to be saved. They don't want to go to hell, but they aren't willing to do what these disciples did. What did these disciples do? Did they just believe in Jesus? Hey, I I believe in you. Keep on mending my nets. Gave up everything and followed him. And that's where the rubber really meets the road. And this is why we have people that call themselves followers of Jesus but don't follow him. It really comes down to this this place. See, John 3.16 is very convenient. When you read it out of context and you erase all those other examples in Scripture, all I have to do is believe, and I'm be saved. But if we t- look at all the verses, we look at all of Scripture, and not just focus in on one, but look at the totality of Scripture, we see that there is this call to commitment, that each and every one of us have to come to this place. If you don't come to that place, you won't and can't be born again. God is not going to supersede your will. He's not going to make you be born again. Until you surrender, until you say, I'm going to give up everything and follow Jesus, it's just not going to happen. You're just going to have religion, and it's going to be very empty and very shallow, very frustrating. You know, if you believe in Jesus, then you should know this. You should know how much he loves you, how much he gave for you, how much mercy and grace he will show you, and that should compel you to give your life to him. It it shouldn't do this. I'll take all that good stuff and I'll keep everything else I got. I'll take what you got, and I'll keep what I have. But that's how a lot of us treat Christianity today. 
I believe that many people identify as Christians, but they aren't following Jesus. Now, we understand what the disciples said. They heard his call, they followed him, they left everything. Let's contrast that, and this is where I think the world is. Matthew 9, 16. Now, behold, one came and said to him, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? You almost see where he wants to earn his salvation already. But he, being Jesus, said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good, but one that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go Sell what you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. A formal invitation he's offering this guy. He looks at him and says, this guy's pretty good. He's pretty sharp. But there's one problem you got. I know what the problem is. It's your love for money. Now, every one of us can have one of these things, not necessarily the love for money. But when the young man heard this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What is he saying? I want to follow you, Jesus. I want to follow you only to an extent. To where that extent is where I have to give up everything. I just can't give up everything. I want all the benefits of Christianity, but I don't want all the commitment. People want to be saved, but hold on to some things. Parts of themselves, their friends, what the things. But following Jesus, trying to do that will make it impossible. Think about this. Jesus shared this proverb or this parable, Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field, gave up everything for it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for a fine, fine pearls. When he found the one of great value, he went away, sold everything he had, and he bought it. He was all in. Church, that's what's missing in today's Christianity. People believe in Jesus, but they aren't following Jesus. You know, following Jesus is never convenient and always requires commitment. I want you to think about this. How many times throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, is a believer, a follower's relationship likened to marriage? You'll find it all throughout Scripture. If you're married, but you aren't fully committed to your spouse, maybe you're committed to someone or something it will prevent you from showing that full devotion in your marriage, and your marriage will be unstable. Only when there's complete dedication from both parties will that marriage thrive and have peace and that it should enjoy. Let's face it, the divorce rate proves it. People want to be married, they want to have sex, they want to play house to a point, to a point when the going gets rough. Because that commitment isn't what it should be, and the marriage will fail. See, it's easy to be married during the honeymoon. It's not so easy when the marriage gets tried and tested. And if you've been married for any length of period at the time, and I think I'm in that category now, over 25 years, your marriage will be tried, your marriage will be tested multiple times in multiple areas. Even when there's failure in a marriage, it can be resurrected. It can be given new life if both spouses are committed and dedicated to each other. Are you following Jesus? Is that what you're doing? Do you follow Jesus in your private life? Have you made a full commitment to him? Do you follow Jesus at work? Do you follow Jesus at school? 
Anyone can follow Jesus at church. You know, a broken clock is right twice a day. You can come to church twice a week and, and look like a Christian. Are you following Jesus in your marriage, in your conversations? Remember, when you come to Jesus and give him everything, you lose your life. But that's when you can gain everything God has for you. There's, there's four people, really, four types of people when it comes to following Jesus. There are people who don't believe in Jesus, and they don't follow him, and we would call them unbelievers. Then you have people who believe in Jesus, but they aren't following him and call themselves Christians. There are people who believe in Jesus, then who have been genuinely born again, but somewhere they begin to follow Jesus and they just begin to wander off. Maybe run up parallel, maybe run sideways, maybe even just going backwards. They were born again, but they've just gotten off course and they're following other things. There are many of us like that in churches and like ours throughout our community. We get tired, we get weary, we get distracted, we get confused, we get discouraged, and we just get off course. And it's time to leave whatever it is, forsake all. Whatever it's gotten you off course, it's, need to get, it's time to get back on course and follow him again. The final group, unfortunately, is fairly small. And throughout the history of God's people, it's always been small. It's called a remnant. And the remnant of people are, is this. They genuinely are born again, genuinely love God, genuinely serve God, doing their best to follow him, and they are ser serving him, following him diligently. And unfortunately, that is a small group. And it's always been a small group. I wish it were the largest group, but it's not. All of us fall into one of those categories. Church, there are some of you who believe in Jesus, but you aren't born again. And there are some of you who are born again, but you're just not following Jesus as you should. And I'm pleading with you this morning, and I'm praying the Holy Spirit is pleading with you also to turn around, change course, and follow him again. 